You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello there, children of all ages. This is Stuart Goldsmith, and you're listening to the Christmas special edition of the Comedian's Comedian podcast, in which we will be talking to Santa Claus himself, a.k.a. Father Christmas, a.k.a. the current wearer of the Father Christmas mantle in one particular place, in one particular time, Mr. Herbie Treehead. Many of you uh, will not be aware of Herbie's work. He is a phenomenal street clown. Uh, He was one of my mentors and remains one of my mentors, but certainly in the early days of street performing uh, in the 90s and noughties, uh, Herbie was someone who really exemplified the enormous passion and chaos and theatricality and comedy that I was so drawn to in street performing that I remain drawn to in so many different aspects of uh, comedy and stand-up, all the types of performing that I love, the stuff that really reaches out and grabs you by the heart. Herbie is very well-versed in that. He's an inspiration, um, a huge influence. He's one of those uh, street performers that all the newer guys get sent to see. And you can take my word for it, Herbie is someone who very much deserves his place here, despite not being a stand-up. I I recognise that this is a curveball episode, but I hope you stay with it because there is a tremendous amount to discover and to enjoy in some elements of Herbie's life story and in his whole approach to the craft of comedy in a very different way to most guests on this show. But before we get into that, we are going to really get into the nitty gritty of what it means to be Santa. When you're Santering, are you Santa or are you Father Christmas or does it change per kid? I'm never Father Christmas. I'm always Santa. Why is that? Because I grew up with Santa. I think, like, as a kid, I never went to see Father Christmas. You went to see Santa. I think it's a a bit of a northeast thing. Okay. Like, my Mrs. Joy, she went to see Father Christmas. So I think it's maybe... Yeah, it's a regional thing, maybe. Okay. But it's really distinct. I'm Santa. I don't like being called Father Christmas. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I'm living this at the minute. And well, this is it. Tell me, this is your first year being Santa. So tell us, this this conversation originated um, for the listener. Herbie is a dear friend of mine for 20 years, friend, mentor, inspiration, fabulous street clown, street performer, and successful failure. And we had a conversation the other morning, last Thursday morning, and I thought we have to have this or a version of it on the podcast because I was in a bad mood about something or other. And I rang you and I said, what are you up to? And you told me what you're up to. So let's just go straight back to that conversation and let's just reprise what it, you, you're a, a, a performer of all sorts of things and have been your whole life, as far as I know. We'll get into your life later on. Tell us about what it means to you 
to be Santa? It's something, Santa, I wanted to try Santa. And normally I'm touring at Christmas with Slightly Fat Features, which is a, a group that I'm in, a comedy style group. And um, I th- we weren't touring. So I thought, right, let's go and have a go at Santa. So I scouted around and I talked to a few people. And I wanted something because I haven't been well that I could sit down and do. And uh, I got this contract at a shopping centre and I turned up for the gig and I was a bit apprehensive. I'm going, I'm 51 years old. Is this what it's become? I'm taking a gig because I want to do something. I, I need some money. And then I went in and I put I put the stuff on and I just went, right, I'm going to go for this. It's going to be real. So I'm... I go to the shopping centre and I have the brief day where I I become Santa. And I think, OK, what, what am I going to do? Is this going to kill me or is it going to be? Well, we'll see. So the first day I start, the 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 elf, chief elf, <laughs> she's she's very experienced and she knows how to work through stuff. She'd be a great production manager, okay. stage manager. She goes, you're going to get a line. You're going to have to knock them through in between a minute and a half to three minutes. Okay. And you've got to, they've got to feel like they've just had the biggest experience of their lives. So I started doing this and I'm trying to do a th- almost like a three-minute routine. Yeah. Really f- trying to, and I'm looking at who's coming in. And um, so if it's a family, I'm trying to work and I'm trying to get them to laugh because I'm looking for the laughs as well. And I'm trying to be Santa and I'm trying to... And then, and I'm trying all these things to go, oh. And then the first, after about maybe an hour or two, this girl comes in and she leans forward and she looks maybe about six inches from my eyes. And I think, oh, this is going to be awkward. This is like, she's not believing this. And she just, she just starts engaging on this level of unbelievableness. And I'm like, whoa, this is good. What do you mean, engaging on a level of unbelievableness? What does that mean? That she believes. And it's prior to a a conversation, a brief conversation that you and I had a few days ago, which you said, and you summed it up. She doesn't believe that I'm not playing Santa. I'm Santa. Yeah. I'm Santa in that moment. And for me, there there is a mythic quality to Santa, whereby Santa is an idea and an ideal... And uh, and uh, it, it is a thing that you can become by putting on the suit. It is a genuinely magic thing. If you do it, you are kind of, you have you have to honour it if you do it properly, and you become the thing that people have always pretended to be throughout the years. It's like it's probably got something in common with being a court jester, or it's do you know what I mean? It's it, it's in, in its sacredness, you become the thing. Is we, that, have I explained we, that any better? I think you probably weird, did it better. Weirdly, it connects in with being a street clown, and I, and I'm I'm not I don't kind of talk about the clown, like like performing and teaching clown and and all of that, because my clown was born of the street, but there is something when you're in it, you become it, just for that time, and then you go back to oh, everything else in your life. And with the Santa, it is. I'll give you some examples of it. I'm I'm sitting there and there's some space in between and it becomes uncomfortable. It's hard work. And then 
it was the end of the day. And um, one of the Avs comes in and goes, right, they tell me who's coming through. So I'm prepared, a little 10 second preparation. And they go, okay, there's this guy is coming through. He's in his 30s and he's, he's a believer. And he's with his sister, who's his carer. So when he comes through, I don't want to use his name because I don't feel I've got the right to out in the public sphere. Mm -hmm. He comes through and I go, oh, welcome, Merry Christmas. And he comes in and he looks at me and he's a fully grown man the size of us. Yeah. And he looks at me and just goes, Santa. You remember me. Oh, because you said his name. You won't yeah, say his yeah. name here, but yeah, okay. And I go, how, how could I ever forget you? And he sits down and I go, have you got a letter? Have you got your letter? And he goes, and he brings out a letter and it's sealed and he opens it up and he takes it out and he, he starts reading me this letter. And there is his sister. And his sister's in her 40s. And she's also got a, a young a young kid of about 12 who's in a wheelchair and um, and another and another boy of about 12 with her. And she said, oh, I'm his, the other child's carer for the day as well. And I, I do this thing because I don't say, have you been naughty? Have you been nice and all of that? I can't be bothered with that. I just want to get something a bit more out of it. And with him, I have to give a present at the end. So we go through all the thing, and he's connected. And I, I go to give him the present, and there's a thing I've kind of adopted to say, I go, look, uh, can I give you this present? It's a pre-Christmas Christmas present. And he goes, he goes, yes. I say, can you do me a favour? Can you look after your sister for me? And he goes, and he goes, yes. And I just turn to her, and she's crying. And I'm Santa, and I'm not allowed to cry. Mm. And I want to cry so much. And the point about that, and then I do high, Santa high five with him. And I do it with the other boy. And he high fives me. And she says, he doesn't do that. And that's, this is not about me, the yeah. person. It's about the entity of the situation that we're in. And, and then she goes, he never, he never does that. And she said, can I take a photo of him doing it? And he did it again. And then they walk out. And that's three minutes of time. And I tell him to look after his family and look after, look after the world and just be happy and look after yourself, I always say. And it sounds a bit wanky, but it's not because I'm allowed to do that because I'm Santa. It's, it's, I love it, man. It's, um... It's like, and I'm kind of getting misty eyes listening to this, partly because it's just like the the idea of Santa is like a game passed down through the ages, of and it, the game or the game, you know, the word the jeu, whatever it is, it's a it's a thing of kindness. It's like kindness is the trick. Like, is it the only reason to be Santa? The only reason for someone to put on the costume and be Santa is to be kind. I mean, obviously, there's a commercial aspect to it. You're in a shopping centre. But you in particular, I think, can look past that and, and recognise this is a real thing. And you just always become this spirit of kindness 
that is like, God, it's one of the best things ever. <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it just like, like I, I'm, I don't think of myself as a very Christmassy person particularly. I like, I like the idea of just time with your family and all the rest of it. But just hearing you talk about it now just makes me feel like, oh yeah, it's not, obviously it's not about presents and all the rest of it. I don't want to start sort of waxing lyrical about the joys of Christmas, but this, the, it's like an example of a kind of theatrical or performative sort of apex where it becomes something real. You know, it's the last thing. It's one of the last things. And this is why it's like street shows and live comedy and live performing, especially live stuff outside. It's a place where you go, where it doesn't work on a screen. The same, it's a presence. And you walk in there and they stand there. He's, he's another example. There's two more examples. Um, a young kid comes in and he's looking at me. He's looking at me. He's looking at me. He's looking at me. And I'm watching him. And he's about seven or eight. That's that turning age. And um, I've grown a beard that I've got now. But it was on the way. But I had another beard over the top. And he grabbed the beard off. And then he's seen another beard underneath. <laughs> <laughs> and I just said, I'm incognito. And he didn't know what that meant. And I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> and, and it was great. But there was another, there was a couple in their 20s. And they had a three-year-old boy and she was pregnant, ready to drop another, another child next week. Now, 20-year-old guys, I've got three boys who are 20, 18 and 16. I'm used to seeing these big, massive-looking kids that kind of inhabit. Because three... 20-year-olds come into a space when you're 50 and you feel like there's 300 people in there. Okay. And he comes in and he's got, his, he's got a high top head, you know, that's that the, the hairstyle from the 80s that's come yeah. back now. I'm short around the sides and the back. And he comes in and I'm watching him and he's swaggering in with his little boy. And I'm watching him, watching him. And guys always stand in the corner and let mothers take care of the business and the likes of and that sort of happens. And they were ready to do a family photo. And I said, you know, I get, I organised the kids. The mother, oh, they had a two-year-old as well. The mother had the other child there. And I said, Dad, come round here and sit here beside me. And he sat on the chair beside me on the arm. And he threw his arms around me. He's like six foot one. He threw his arms around me and just grabbed a hold. And I said, I said... Are you missing Santa? And he went, yes. And I'm like, these moments happen all the time. They take the photo, he gets himself back around, and then he stands back in the corner and becomes the kind of background furniture and allows me to do the thing. Um, and it might have been the only time, I don't know. I, I got three kids and we got a family photo for the first time two years ago. Really? Because... It's not that you don't want to. The time doesn't happen. Yeah, right. There was another family came in and the, the security came and said, you've got to be aware of this family. And I'm like, obviously known to them. Okay. And the family walk in and, and two young daughters and the mother all dressed elegantly. And the guy is a massive monster of a man in jeans and a T-shirt. And he comes in. And they all come in and everybody's cautious up to that point. I've been briefed. 
and uh, I start working it and working it. And I'm watching him. What do you mean by working it? I start working the routine through. It's just okay. honestly, it's so close to. I've got a a routine that I do in slightly fat features, which is the cup stick ball. It's yeah. a magic. It's a take on cups and balls routine, and it's supposed to be a minute, and normally it's about four. Yeah, but it's like banging it in. You know, banging it through, finding the ga- gaps, finding the temperament and delivering that. And then you get into the same routine with this. So I'm like, right, I and I, I'm making me options. And this is why it's so the same as working a crowd because you go, who am I going to work first? Right. I'm going to work the, the, those more engaged. I'm going to flip the eye over and just connect with the person that's not engaged then I'm going to swap over from the engaged person who I've got fully committed. I'm going to look over to the, the which is the dad, mm-hmm. and I'm going to I'm going to throw a line at him. I'm going to throw him something that he can respond to, but it's never going to be an attack. It's always going to be inclusion, but it's going to be, I'm going to try and pitch it at a level that he he's allowed to get. Playing it like that, so. These two young girls are there. They're like six years old and three years old. And I'm, I'm going through the thing of, you know, asking them, have they written the letter? Have they, you know, what, you know, um, have you got your tree up yet? Because they make some reindeer food. Okay. And I tell them, put the put the reindeer food under under the tree. And on Christmas Eve, when you go to sleep, you'll be, your house will be quiet. And mum and dad, mum and dad, they'll be in the jammers and they'll be asleep because they'll be knackered and me saying that and then I always glance to the dad or the mum and I get a reaction from them because mm-hmm. they go oh he gets this and then bring it down and say leave the reindeer food and I'll come with me sleigh and me reindeers and I'll bring you some presents but have you got any carrots in your house and they look bewildered have you got any carrots? And the kids always say no. And the parents are going, you know, I've had a family have a fight about carrots now. And the, the parents are going, of course we've got carrots. And the, the little, I mean, this little little boy is going, we haven't got carrots. We don't like carrots. Right? All of that. And I explain about Rudolph. Leave it for Rudolph. Leave a carrot for Rudolph and a pie for me. And maybe a drink, maybe some water or some milk. And then I go, or maybe something stronger. And I look back to dad again. Yeah, yeah. And I get a reaction from dad. I'm in. So I do all this and I play this and the kids are great. They get up. Do That's just the kids did the, did the photo. They go out and as dad's walking out, dad's are always the last one to walk out this. It's a tiny space. It's, mm-hmm. I must, you know, it's eight foot, eight foot by eight foot. So, and the dad's walking out and as he walks out, he walks past the curtain and then takes a step backwards and he goes, thanks, mate. And I went, no, no, no. Thanks, Santa. And he goes really sheepishly, thanks, Santa, and walks away. <laughs> and I'm like, that's the power of this. It's not the power of me. It's the power of this myth, like you say. It's the yeah. history. We've all had it. We've all grown with it. And it, it, it was going to be a bit of a shitty gig. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. And it's become, I've learned so much about performing again after doing, being a performer for 30 odd years. And that's what's incredible. And I've got more to do. And so describe what the job is. Because what did did you say to me? It's a hundred, you get a hundred sittings. 
and they're about three minutes long each. Is that right? Or do you, I mean, what kind okay. of hours are we talking? Let's just talk brass tacks about what the day okay. looks like. I'm doing, I'll start it on a Saturday. I'll start at 11. I'll work through to 1.30. I'll have a half an hour break. And then I'll start at 2 and I'll run till 6. And do about 70. But that'll peak at 150 in the days up to Christmas. Um, and then on a Sunday, it's 12 to 5. And then in the final days up to Christmas, there's five days and it's full on from 10, from 11 to 6 every day. And they come through. So when, and this is what's incredible, the, the mechanisms of it is if the, if the queue's coming through fast, I have to deliver without it being, without it seeming to be kind of rushed. Perfunctory. You, yeah. you know this. You know when you go, because I'm, I'm no good at getting up and doing a five minute. I need 10, that's why I'm a street performer. Yeah. I need 40 minutes just to get started, to play. And when you go and do something that's three minutes, you want to, You've got it. Your job is to make it feel like everybody's been there for an hour without it being long and not a minute. And and then we got down to a minute and a half. So head health comes in and goes, minute and a half now. And I go, okay, right. And I'm thinking through, right, what am I going to cut here? What am I going to bring in? And it's becoming a script, a, a fluid script that I can pull stuff out and pull stuff in and and add in and you know, and I try and add something new every day. So I'm doing, last week I did about, I just went, just as they're going out the door, I go, don't forget, look out your window. Just before you go to sleep, look out your window and look at the sky. It might take 10 minutes, but you'll see me flying across that sky. And you might see Rudolph's red nose just flashing as you're going across. I feel like you are... I am sure that you are a brilliant Santa because I know you and I know your passion and I know your commitment and you can we can all hear how much you care and genuinely involve yourself with it. I'm sure there are Santas out there who are less brilliant and less engaged. When you brought yourself to it, did you... What were your expectations of the job? Because we've all got an image of like, I mean, the Santa I think of, one of the first Santas I think of, if you say Santa to me, is Dan Aykroyd in uh, Trading Places. Yeah. <laughs> be like all that. smuggling an entire salmon out under his beard. You know, that yeah. horrible kind of grotty Santa kind of thing. And all of that came to mind. You know, Bad Santa and all of that. It's a movie that mm. my, the, the minute I told me kids, they're like, Bad Santa, Dad, you're perfect. <laughs> you know, because, and, and you know, my street performance especially, you know, I'm... I'm you know, I'll take risk and I'll push it. And that's what I think that's been a great learning curve for me to be in there and be very, quite staid. You know, I sit down for the whole thing. I don't get up. I got up once at the early and I got up and I terrified everybody, including the parents, because Santa's sitting there and then Santa gets stands up and then suddenly there's a different thing happening. Yeah, that's weird. So Santa has to sit down. Santa has his status. And, and, and the strength by sitting there. So it becomes very animated, physically moving forward and moving right forward. I've got glasses on and the likes of, and and uh, white gloves. So it's just like all of that element of the true physical person goes away. I first went, I went into it thinking, I'm going to do this. As a performer, 
as as my job, I've always been, if I do something, I fully commit to it. And I, I indulge myself and live it because I love doing that. And that's what I went in. I went, right, I want to I want to get somewhere with this. I want to work out what it is. And I like I like the entity of Santa. I like the idea that it is something that's omnipresent, that is there and everybody gets it. So, and it's really accessible. And I really like accessible theatre and accessible performing. That's one of the key factors. I, you know, I've got quite a high social principle in life regarding performing. That's why I'm a street performer. I want accessibility. And what's really interesting about this Santa gig, because they pay to come in, mm. but there's the families outside, stand outside uh, with four kids. And I know them because I've been them, can't afford to bring their kids in. And I, I lean forward and I wave. And that sometimes is the magical moment of just waving. I've even got that down to I wave with one hand and look and smile Mm -hmm. and then I go back and then I come forward and I wave again and then they go there they start waving and I wave with two hands and I put my thumbs up and they put the thumbs up and they run off and they've had their moment they've seen Santa and you know that's not I'm not trying to sound like a socialist hippie well I am though (laughs) I'm more an anarchic hippie but um, you know that's I hope that helped answer the reason I'm doing it and being part of it. Was it? Did it feel like um, it cost you something to to like? It, is being Santa a thing that one aspires to, or is it a thing that you think? Well, I'm at the age now where I could I could probably do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, did you? Presumably, you didn't know it would be this fulfilling going into it. No, but part of it, I thought. I'm going to work to make it fulfilling. And that's how I've always worked. It's like if I build something and I've built some really stupid things in my <laughs> life to perform with physical things and I'm no engineer, um, I, I'll commit fully to it and go through. And I knew that. But yeah, I, in the last few years, I've, I've got to this point where I want to do stuff for performance sake. So, you know, with my mates, we got to the pinnacle of where we were trying to go. Yeah. It, with slightly fat features. Which we, is, uh, so it's, it's seven, uh, I'm not going to say elderly, but uh, yeah. <laughs> seven guys in tuxes doing a vaudeville. Yeah, we do. A series of vaudeville acts. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's an absolutely and, brilliant show. And, you've toured and you've been to Montreal. And and, yeah, we've did all of that. We've, we've been, you know, we've done all this, this, and it's run by Gromway, who's Gromway Tom, who's, just put his life into it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and it's, we've done it 13 years. And, you know, we did Christmas runs at Leicester Square Theatre. We do, we've got pockets around the country where we do sold out places like Lancaster. In For some reason in Lancaster, we go there and do a few nights there. They've picked up and we've got all that. We went to Montreal and had to almost build a theatre to make that work and then got, got an international comedy award, which was hilarious. And, uh, and, why I'm telling you about that is then we did Sunday night at the Palladium and we went, all of us, and we did, I think, four routines throughout throughout the night. And when you stand on there and there's, I think, 2,269 people in front of you in a wall that's had 
2,000 years of theatre design to get to that point when they mm. built it. Mm. And you, it, look, it feels like you're in a 200-seater. And when we did that, as us as a collective, and we were unknown to everybody, yeah. and we made 2,200 and whatever people laugh because of us a number of times and walked away from that, it's like that becomes your pinnacle. And we've strived to the T. We've been on TV, you know. We tried TV. We tried, you know. I mean, we were on Alan Titchmarsh show, and <laughs> um, yeah, you know. And I made Alan swear live on TV, <laughs> and he had to apologise. And we've done all of that, and we like played that whole game in the industry to try and get to the point where you're going. And then I got to the point like two years ago of just going. I'm going to do stuff just for the sake of doing it and be lucky enough to make a bit of money or some money or hopefully a lot of money if I can. And that's why I chose Santa. So in the long winded way, I chose, I wanted to do it because I wanted to go, I've done this and I've experienced this. And I think in, in the back of my mind, I knew it wasn't going to be as bad as the expectation because in the- I mean, it's a hard gig. It's you a say a hundred, a hundred minute and a half long shows or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. That's tough. Just endurance. That's tough. Focus and concentration and, you know, just having to talk all day. But and, and the weight of expectation as well. Like, your beard can't come off. And if it does come off, you've got to have something to say about it. Well, that is, that's why I've grown the beard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wanted that to be real in the sense that there was a real beard. But the big thing is it plays on everything that I've learned as a performer. It plays with temperament. It plays with, with design, with words of physicality. It, all of these things that we strive to get right. And, you know, you get right or you don't get right. And then there's the next one. The good thing about this is, you know, because that, that thing, is you're only as good as your next show. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. This is great because you've got yeah. one. You've got one in a few minutes. And you can do it, you know, and you, you shape. It, it, I've walked away from this understanding more about the shape of a routine more than anything so um it's it's absorbing into me and it's like going back to school again even though school was shit and didn't work it, it it's given me this chance to just because it's not about the, the it's not about what you're doing it's it's not about what you what you're trying to deliver it's about what you're doing is what i'm saying in in the sense of it's, it's teaching me to be disciplined in the structure and, and push out from different parts of the structure of the routine. And this is so all of that technical aspect, I, I had a feeling that I would get that out of it. And on the 24th, when I finish, I'm going to be exhausted from that. And then I'm going to Adelaide to start a new venture as in street shows. So and I want I want I wanted some kind of thing that I could really exhaust myself with to get something out of, to take on to that next step and and try and make a disaster that I'm going to do maybe a bit better. I'm, I'm wondering how there is, so, there is so much in your career and in our relationship. Like I described you at the beginning as I, I considered you a mentor. I felt that when me and Noel uh, went to uh, Edinburgh for the first time with our double act, the unknown oh, stuntmen. What, the other funny guy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
you were kind of part of our pedigree. I remember you and Pepe and Vince, and these I know that these names won't mean anything to people listening to this, but between the three of you in three wildly different ways, you had this enormous impact on us as teenage street performers. And I remember the sorts of things you would say to me. You would challenge us constantly. You'd go, at the beginning of your show, just challenge yourself to not speak for 10 minutes. You were kind of trying to nudge us. You could see that we had something and you were trying to nudge us towards being what you considered to be good because we all know. I, th- I think I think you and I are both really electrified by some of the same elements of street performing, that mythic quality of it, the fact that it has, I for years felt like it had a real sort of nobility to it because you know there were probably there were street performers in ancient egypt 5000 years ago you know it's like it it's an it's an infinite thing and you were a part of it and as soon as you stand there in the street put down your ancient egyptian suitcase and start banging on it and shouting and getting people's attention you become part of the the family tree of street performers like that i think both really buzzes yes for both of us who were you what i remember from from you when i met you I mean, was it 20 years ago? Probably longer than that now. Maybe 25 years ago. Who were you? I remember you doing your pantomime horse show. Were you doing that one that long ago? No. No, that's 20 years ago. Before that, I was trying to walk on a rope. I was doing a slack rope. I remember. In Covent Garden. And I was so bad at it. So my whole routine was putting the rig together. Because that's the clown routine. And putting the... So I had two A-frames that I used to tie off to lampposts and stuff like that. And I'd get an audience and I'd have interactive with people, lots of, and I'd, I could do it either talking or not talking. Take about 15, 20 minutes and really engagement, lots of, lots of uh, reaction points from the audience, lots of designed reaction points and uh, enough freedom to have the play, uh, lots of, and then I'd get up on the rope and they'd be ready. And then I'd speak to them for a bit, usually, and tell them I'm going to get up on the rope. But by the time I got to that point, they were really unsure whether it was a good idea for me to get on the rope because I wasn't very good. You were good. so clearly inept. I was so clearly inept. <laughs> and that wasn't a play. That was because I was so clearly inept because I've never learned how to do anything properly. And so I could get up on a rope and I could stand on the rope and I could walk out just. <laughs> and I have to say, I've always, up until this point, I've always assumed that you were way better at it and that that was part of the and game. I'd get, out, <laughs> I'd get out there and I knew I'd have to do it. I did stuff like, um, there's there's a thing that they used to do hundreds of years ago, once again, walking on ropes, they used to put baskets on your feet. Mm. And so you walk on the baskets with the f- baskets. Well, I thought it'd be funny to have um, st- metal uh, buckets so I've got two metal buckets and strapped them to my leg and I'm on the floor and people are going what's he doing and I get up and I'd never tried it before but the bucket slipped and I fell off I fell off and smashed my leg inside the bucket but had to get up and get people to hold me and the the thing especially in Covent Garden when I used to do when I used to walk on the rope uh, I, tr- I, I tried a marionette puppet on the rope I don't know why I thought it'd be funny to have a marionette puppet because it's Ropes, string, didn't work. Um, so I used to walk out and all the other performers used to come and stand behind. And they all used to, you uh, used to be changing money. And they used to, and they're all really world-class jugglers. And I'd try and juggle three juggling clubs and I can't juggle. And normally you've got to juggle about maybe 20 throws to get a decent finale. And they'd all be having a sweepstake. 
<laughs> See, you get right. It's like four, six, eight, and I get about four or zero, and then they'd be chucking fivers and tenors at each other. Big line of them, I can remember. You know, uh, and so I was doing, I was doing that, but I was playing more when I first met you, because uh, I met you in Edinburgh. Mm. I was kind of just, I was playing, I was doing clowning routines on the floor, and I was doing very well because the idea was you need something big up high to get an audience and you didn't because what you could do is you could work the audience and work the audience and get them on your side to the point where the first 200 people were with you the rest of its ego and back to the point what I liked about about Nolan you when, when we first met is that you were kind of just you were on the floor you mm. were doing stuff on the floor which Become a thing. You were you wore suits as well because there's a thing about street performers wearing all ill-fitting suits, and there's kind of a difference. There's a particular kind of performer wears a suit, very quite English as well in in the in the sense of the history of street mm. performing, where you get kind of you know the Australians would wear you know leather lo- leather and look <laughs> and, and whips and stuff like that, and they'd have a whole style of kind of Mad Maxi almost, yeah, maybe that's where yeah, it comes yeah. from. But the English, we kind of wore ill-fitting suits that were always a mess because you've been out there, you know, and quite dark, dark-coloured suits as well because you can't be on the street with a with a white suit; it won't last five minutes. And um, so I was, you know, I was doing that, and then I did pantomime, and then I had an idea: pantomime horse. I've got if I get a pantomime horse, it can go in a bag. So I met. Uh, I, I knew a woman who was a costume maker who I'd worked with and I'd set me lungs on fire, a breathing fire, at a venue that I was at and she was playing the violin there. So I ended up in a, from the breathing fire, I ended up in a, um, in, in, a, uh, in a coma for five days and I couldn't walk for six weeks. Jesus Christ. And, um, yeah, there was a... What was this blowback from fire breathing? Yeah, I was, using I was beefing by the tower and they asked me to fire breathe because these clients were coming in. I was a jester. It was a nighttime gig. Uh, it's a medieval banquet. And um, and I said, I've never done this before. He went, oh, please. I've told them to be a fire, fire breather. Never done it before. So I did it. And it was the middle of winter. And the wind came back and set me face on fire. God. And it set me face on fire because I had the the uh, the fuel in my mouth. Yeah. Which was lighter fuel, which you shouldn't have done. Oh, God. Yeah. I had to breathe, and I breathed, and it set fire down inside my lungs, like this. So um, they stopped the show, and I took a bow, apparently. They took me downstairs to the toilets and started pouring water over my face, and they took me to hospital, and as I was in the hospital, I I just remember standing there in a jester's outfit. Oh, God. Um, I just remember the, 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 the paramedic I was with hit, the but- hit this red button, the next thing I woke up, um, I woke up in uh, five days later and they brought me round and I'd lost 25% of my lung capacity and my lung, I would cough up lung for the following weeks and I stayed in the hospital and, uh, and the beautiful thing about that is when I was in hospital and when I couldn't work for six weeks, the street performers of Covent Garden We've got this tradition if somebody's 
not well, they do a show for you. You get the biggest earner, all lots of them. And Richie, lucky Rich, Richie, Rich as he was known, uh, did a show and came and give give me money. They came in and they threw the money on the bed in the hospital when I was barely conscious. The the nurses didn't know what to do with you know these crazy people that walked in. It was like. It was like the clowns had just come and they chucked all this money and brought me loads of food and stuff. And then for six weeks, they paid my rent. So why I was telling you all about that is because that's where I met Joy. And Joy made, and Joy was also a costume maker. And I thought, can you make me a green spotted pantomime horse? (laughs) And um, she made me a pantomime horse. And then uh, a month later, she was pregnant. And we've now got three kids. Uh, and we've been together for 22 years. 21 years. 22 years. The, this, the span, the course of your career, for me, the things that I think of as like the most uh, standout elements of it are the pantomime horse shows. Because you used to be one of the street performers who, I don't mean used to be, you, you still are. But I remember during that kind of halcyon period of my 20s doing the Edinburgh Festival. My 20s, as far as I remember, that it's just the Edinburgh Festival over and over again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you were the performer. You were one of two or three performers that all the other performers would go and see. You're one of those people you could watch your street show again and again and again and again. Partly because you were spectacularly inept. <laughs> you know, people would take bets on your ability. But, you know, predominantly because... It was always different. It was always kind. It was always engaging. It was always, I don't mean kind, it was sort of sentimental, but there was genuine risk and there were those things that make us feel magic. It wasn't someone doing a skills-based routine that happened to be outdoors. It was you working an audience and we'd sit there and watch you work an audience in like, it was like the 5pm slot, yeah. the sundown slot yeah. on the on the Royal Mile. Yeah. The things that I think of in, in your kind of performing background as I know it are that, Cherub's Garden, which we might talk about, the Dinosaur Circus, yeah. which we might talk about, which you did first and is now someone else's version of it, is touring the world and yeah. uh, doing really well, um, and your uh, musical career. Yeah. To my son, you are a a sort of... A, a living cartoon character who's also his friend. Like, he's kind of word perfect on a lot of your silly songs. You do sleepy songs and not-so-sleepy songs, which you can get, which people can... The happy songs, of course. Sleepy songs can, and not very sleepy songs. And not very sleepy songs, which we can listen to on Spotify. And uh, you have been responsible for such a, a sort of a wide variety of really warm-hearted, generous, funny, exciting artistic projects which haven't made you rich and famous no and i didn't set out to be rich and famous uh i wanted to do work i started off in london 1985 i came to london to to be a hall porter in a hotel with my brother and my brother went one day come round and see this and we walked into covent garden and captain Keno was doing a show in front of her must have been 700 people and i went my god i want to do that and then I realised I couldn't do that because I had nothing to offer. But what I had was with me, I had a guitar. So I went in the underground, I started playing. And I started playing three chord songs and I would make money. I worked as a hall porter, two days on, two days off. And the two days off I'd go. And I, I lived in Northumberland Avenue, just off Tavaga Square. Because I lived in the hotel. And I did that. And I didn't know 
you could write songs. I didn't know, this is me at 16, 17. I didn't know that you could, that you could uh, make a living as a performer. I didn't know that you could, I mean, you, I could write a play. I didn't know that I could record some music and I didn't know that I could um, write a joke or, or create a, a piece of comedy. I didn't know that. I thought other people did that. And then suddenly I'm like, right, I'm going to try and do this. So over the years, I've tried to do it. I played music. The, the Happy Song is a song. We had it on free download and it's, you know, tens of thousands downloaded. And I'm, I'm proud of it. Now, 20 years later, I recorded it with Robert Lee, who's a great friend, brilliant composer and producer and musician. And engineer and I went to him and said like I do with everybody I go I've got these songs I want to record them and he went okay so we went to a scout hut and we recorded these songs and one of them is the happy song and the happy song is my creed I was brought up as a Catholic and in the Catholic church there's a thing called the creed and the creed is I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ his only son and all that bollocks and I'd thrown all that out later on and no disrespect to anybody that's Catholic good luck to you um and so I wrote my own creed and it was don't let your flitter and belly of laughter take off and run away. And don't forget to smile just before you get out of bed each day. Don't let dancing be not very much fun. Don't be sad in the morning when you can't see the sun, etc., etc. I photocopied it. And when I was in Australia doing street shows at the end of the show, because I didn't have a finale. I would hand out, I would say it and hand it out. If people, I say, if you come up and take some money, take, take my my creed so people would take it i was in covent garden doing just finished a street show and um and it was two weeks after no a week after recording the album and i had it on mini disc a copy of it on mini disc and one of the guys shandy south had a mini disc so i knew i could get get to him and get him to do some copies for me which are, that's why i was in covent garden uh, with with it and uh Shandy was listening to it and I finished doing the show and a guy came up to me and he said, I want to give you this piece of paper. And he gave me a photocopied piece of paper of, of what became the happy song of Don't Let yeah. Your Fritten. And he said, this is, look, I got, I got given this and I've been giving it to people. <laughs> After a street show. And I said, that's mine. And he went, no, it's not. You're bullshitting. I went, it's not. And then suddenly I went over to Shandy. I think John H., a good friend of ours that yeah. died. John H. was there listening to it, I think. And then the guy goes over. I bring him over. I go, it is. And then he listens to it. And it's just like, it's coincidence. It's not this great mythical thing that's happened. It's just a, a bit of probability coming together. And, you know, to do stuff like that. So... That's my win. That's my win better than most other things. It's better than the, you know, the best gigs I've ever done or the worst gigs I've ever done. It's that's me win. If you were to try and sum up what is magical to you about street performing for people who I mean the, the I, I would imagine that the listener of this show is only hazily aware of street performing probably only hears it mentioned when I occasionally very occasionally mention it on the show <laughs> um 
And uh, like, obviously, it means an enormous amount to me. It means a huge amount to you. So if you had to convince the casual listener who is still with us at this point of what it means to you, what would you say? It's about, it's about the space. It's about making a space into a theatre. It's about the warmth of people that stand beside each other, that don't know each other and still at the end of the show won't, but are there. It's the same as an indoor show, but there's more aspects to play with. You're, you st- when you stand there on a pitch and you're ready to start a show and it's desolate or there's people milling around, you go, and I still go, this is never going to work. And then... You work it, you work it until you find something that clicks and then suddenly they're with you. Physically, I mean, and and emotionally. And you get that collectiveness. It's... But it's... It, it, you can... The, I'll tell you the thing about it. It can You can play delicate, really big. You can play the tiniest thing really big. You can... You can get the temperament of 500 people... To, to sit with you and go on this little tiny stupid journey for a little bit of time and you can be responsible for your own thing I don't need an agent I don't need a, a fee I don't need an expectation that's all of them things as a performer but it it stops people it stops people and then you're engaged with it and you're part of it and you, you, your world has just become small and contained. And then at the end of it, when people, I love the disbursement of how people walk away. And I've done loads of analysis. I, 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 I love analysis because I analyse football. I break a game down to 5,400 seconds and collect data four times a second. So I've been doing analysis of over the last few years of watching how people walk away. And they walk away with a different temperament, a different beat, a different physically pattern. And that's what's brilliant. So it's a, it's a, it's a stopping moment. It's a bit like Christmas Day. You know when Christmas Day, when, when, I don't, when there's no buses, when there's no trains, when everybody, there's no cars flying up and down and the world just stops and just, just breathes for a bit. I know it sounds hippy-trippy that, but a street show, when it works... When you get your time, does that. Whether it's on the West Piazza in Covent Garden or if it's up in Edinburgh on the High Street or if it's in, you know, I was in Ethiopia and they said, come, Mr Herbie, come and do a show. Where? The arena. And I go and it's a field with a big bank and there's about three and a half thousand people. And you go, I'm, I'm, what am I going to do? And I start doing the show and there's a there's a trick that you can make a little red hanky appear and disappear from your hands. And um, I had that in my pocket and I've had that maybe for 20 years as a backup and I've never used it. I never used it. And I take this red the hanky out going, I need to do something. <laughs> none, of, none of the other stuff, I, you know, self-doubt. And I show it and I put it into my fist and I do that. And they all gasped. <laughs> I nearly fell over. I was I was more taken than them. And then I took it back out and then put it in my pocket. And that's not about me, because that's actually somebody invented that mechanism. Somebody, you know, and you know, seen as almost like a standard. 
But that embodies street theatre. And, and it's harder to become a street performer anymore because you actually can become a, a street performer, but so many, orga- so many physical spaces are controlled by private companies now that around the world, there's so much restrictions. I was part of, in 1985, I did shows till four o'clock in the morning in Leicester Square and I'd be there. And there was a guy called Old Redbeard, we called him. He was the sergeant and he'd walk through and some days he'd like you. Some days he wouldn't like you. And he'd bring the van in. He'd get chucked in the van. They'd drive you around Soho. They used to have speed bumps mm. in the back of Soho. For 45 minutes. Put you out and go, if you ever fucking come here again, we're going to slap the fuck out of you. And then you go back down to, you go back down to Leicester Square. Because it was illegal then. And it was legal in Covent Garden because that was a licensed area. Mm. But I was scared to go in there because I couldn't do what they did. Mm. I couldn't do that. So I didn't go there and performed there for 10 years. Yeah, 1994, nine years. Talk to me about those 10 years of, of you coming down with your brother, seeing the shows and thinking, I want to do that. What was the gap between that and your first actual... So you did the bu- guitar busking? I did guitar busking, and then I finished the busking, and then somebody stole my guitar. So I thought, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy a, a saxophone. So I went and bought a Corton saxophone for 195 quid that out of the busking, and I went in the underground and I learned three. I learned Saving All My Love For You, Summertime, and I can't remember the other one. There was another tune. I can't remember it. That's the only things I learned. So I played that for a bit. And then I ended up having nowhere to live and, and being on the N18 bus, which used to go down to Catford in a big circle every night with these these other guys. And we used to sit on that. And then I, I got that stolen because I got in a fight. And uh, that was nicked. And that's when I started at that point. So that's about maybe 1985. In the June of 85, I went, I'd watched performers do, and I wanted to be a magician. That's all. And I went to Leicester Square and I was too scared to be around the other performers that were doing Leicester Square. So I'd wait till about two o'clock in the morning and I'd work from two till about four now looking back at with the hardest people you could ever do shows in front of. And I would try and do the thing I would do. So I used to try and do the cup and ball, which I was no good at and everybody, because I'd they'd always see where the balls were and where I was holding them and the likes of. But the thing is, what I, what I learned was that I could get a laugh. I could find a laugh and get a laugh. And I didn't care if it was at me or with me. Mm-hmm. I didn't give a shit about that. I wanted, I went, oh, I can do this. And if somebody was mouthy with me, I could be mouthy back. But on a Sunday, every Sunday, I went to the place that taught me how to be a performer more than any other place. I went to Speaker's Corner and I became a speaker there for quite a while. What did you speak about at Speaker's Corner? Uh, My opening gambit was um, all the stupid people come over here. (laughs) If you're stupid, come over here. If there's something you don't want to listen to, come over here. If you don't, you know, and I'd go off on one like that. And that was just like, I'd go. And that was freedom. And that took me about two years, three years to be... So I'd wait till the end of the night when there was a crate there and you'd get up on a crate and try to do it. And then I worked through on that and I got... I, I enjoyed doing that. So every every Sunday, I'd, most Sundays, I'd go down there and I'd stand there. And then I'd talk about being kind. I'd talk about, you know, 
if you're, you know, you're not stupid to people. The people who didn't come over stupid, you know, reverse. Mm-hmm. And that's where I learned about how to reverse language and how to play, play people and then play the idea and then re- turn the idea. Um, I learned how to, um, I watched other performers and I learned how to, he- to deal with hecklers and to heckle, mm-hmm. which was really good fun because the hecklers there, they were all the same line every week, every week. I knew I had to have something to come back. I learned how to include all them things, but I was very animated. And that's where I think out of there, the clowning came. I even did one by just shouting, just going, right, I did that for a while. And that was quite interesting because that got a lot of attention and uh, they couldn't touch me. So that play at Speaker's Corner and then, and then I went off traveling. Me and my brother Mick went down to Nice in France and I did a show there. Um, that was like, I think, the first time I did a, a near to a circle show that worked. And then I went to America and I did some stuff in America. And that's where I started to get an edge, which is the edge is the front where you got, where you found that people were with you, watching the structure and learning. And then uh, I went around Europe and started to work it. And that's the start of... That's maybe 87, 88, and I started to work. The, um, the, the the festival circuit was just building up. And then I came back, and then I wanted to put a show on. So I wrote a show and took it to Edinburgh. And I didn't know Edinburgh existed. And that was 91. I took the show to Edinburgh, an indoor show. I grew up 103 miles from Edinburgh. I didn't know the biggest arts festival in the world was 103 miles up the road. Nobody ever told me that, and I couldn't believe it. And I did the show, and we did really well with the show. What was the show? It was called Stickled. It was a a, a revolutionary toy shop tale uh, by people and puppets, and it was about basically a toy shop where a ball arrives, and there's the toys with the batteries, where the controllers and the toys with the wind-ups they took the mechanism out of the toy and put batteries in and then the ball arrives and it was the sacred toy. And if they hit it, it it moved and they didn't know how. So we did that. And then I went, oh God, Edinburgh's incredible. So I was doing street shows in the jungle, which was a part of the mound where anything went. So I did that. And then um, I went off to Australia, did Australia, came back to London, went into Covent Garden, started working and then... I'd written my songs more and I'd written a show called Cherub's Garden, which I took to Nickelodeon uh, when Nickelodeon first opened and Paramount Comedy Channel opened. I was there that night. I was next door and they give me a chance and I didn't know the language. I didn't know what to do and I blew the lang- I blew it and uh, took that show to Edinburgh and then ended up with a transfer to the National Theatre. <laughs> <laughs> so you blew you blew it in terms of the TV thing, yeah. And they like you just you weren't you didn't, didn't know how to have a meeting. I didn't know I couldn't. You know I turned up. Were you wearing shoes? I, no, no, I wasn't. <laughs> Seriously, I wasn't. I wasn't. You know, I. You know, it's just like I turned up with a load of puppets and some ideas and some scripts. I'd, I'd written sixty scripts. They said, "Have you got a script?" I went, "Yeah," and I give them sixty. I'd written, hand-written. 60 them. copies? No, 60, 60, 60 episodes. 
60 episodes. Episodes, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I wrote them over about three months. I just sat all day writing, 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 writing all night. So I wrote them. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, stupid episodes like, you know, they, they just, they have a, this is in 1991, they have a, um, some cherubs and some angels live in the bottom of a garden and they uh, have a, two of them are having a discussion whether the world was flat or round. Because, you know, one of them said, if it's flat, how can you... It's got to be flat. It's on this piece of paper because they had a, they had a, a map. So they're going to build a rocket to go up out of a vacuum cleaner and, uh, and a giant uh, balloon to go and two chairs to go up to take a picture and come back. You know, it's absolute silly bollocks. <laughs> any silly bollock idea I wrote. Okay. <laughs> first thought process. Write the idea. Don't edit it. Mm-hmm. And then um, I took it to Edinburgh and we did a show in Edinburgh. And it was really It was a kid's show. And it was really fun to do. And it was hard work. And then the national, a bloke called Jonathan Holloway came to watch us, who now runs the Melbourne International Festival. Until very recently. Yeah, he's just yeah. left. Yeah. And... Uh, Jonathan Holloway available for keynote speeches about all sorts. Or, or he's just, a speaker, I think. Or now. production work. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, and, and we went and did it at the National Theatre. I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't... It was a small venue, but I'd, like, got to the National Theatre, which was funny, but... And it was great fun. And so on my CV, it looks great, but it's still not as good as doing a show on the high street in Edinburgh during the festival and you've only got half an hour left and the sun's going down and you don't open your case. You're just standing there and you're going, right, and you don't speak and the audience are there. The audience are there that want to be there. And the significance of not opening your case is that's what, when you open your case, that's got the gear in it. That those, those are the props that, as soon as you open it, you know what the rest of the show is. Yeah. And the longer you don't open it for... The, the more, more you're just playing and living in the playing moment. Playing in the time and and playing with the physicality and playing with the people and being and stopping. And you know, I love because I don't work well, I have worked with mics on the street, especially, but I work with a, a lapel. Because the thing is, if you go out there and you get it in the middle of the noisiest street and you get it because people are tuned and they can hear the silence in the middle of that street. That's what you're looking for. You're not looking for the clap. You're not looking for the laugh. You're looking for the silence. If they can hear the silence, that means your temperament's gone down and you're ready. That means when the next laugh comes, it's going to it's gonna be big because you've, you've, you've taken them to the top and then back down at the bottom. And it's, the, and it's the temperament of the language, of the physicality of the people, not the performer, the collective thing, which is the same in comedy clubs or in variety theatres or whatever. And are you entirely self-taught? Did you ever train anywhere or kind of were taken under the wing of other performers or anything like that? Or is it all about you watching and observing and trying and working? Like you use the word work all the time. You work it and you work it and I just worked it and I did. Do you know what I mean? It, like it, it feels like a really, like a sort of lifelong DIY project to... To, to learn what this thing is that excited you and where your place was? Street performers are really good at being supportive and critical in the street. 
So you go out and do something. And especially the collective friends that I've got, that you're part of, a generation that we came up together, you, you talk about, we'll talk to you directly about the craft. They'll talk to you. If you came off, they don't say that was shit. You'll go, that didn't go too well, did it? And then you'll talk it through. But you've got another chance straight away. So I learned by watching. I'm still a fan. Like, I'm a fan of your podcast and your Facebook, the ComCom Facebook mm-hmm. group, is because I get the questions that people ask. And I get because I still ask the questions. I still stand at the back. I'll, if I walk down to Covent Garden today and I don't do street shows there anymore, I'll still stand and watch a show. I'll stand and watch it from the back. I'll watch the people. That's the interest. Two things that I did get taught. Um, in, improbable theatre, I think they're called. There was mm-hmm. a guy called Marcelo. who was one Magni. Of the, Marcelo Magni. I can't. I don't. Yeah, I think so. I've met him once. Yeah. Somebody, Fraser Hooper, who's another fantastic mm-hmm. clown, I think it was Fraser, said, come and see this guy. And I just remember being up in this to go and do a workshop. I'm like, fucking workshop, Jesus Christ. Why don't you just go and do it on the street? You know, that kind of thing. And this was me in my 20s. Yeah. Um, and then I go, I remember being in this top of a building in a, like a dance studio with the roof really close. And this guy comes out and he starts talking. There's maybe 30 people in there. And he shows a mask called a neutral state mask, which is a, what's his face? The other, that French clowny. Lecoq. Lecoq, who actually the mask is from Coppole, who was a contemporary of his. Okay. And it's a neutral state mask. And he puts this mask on. And he talks about the status of your body and about relaxing to that kind of zero point. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's bollocks. And then um, I put the mask on. I'm like, whoa. And then I'm like, oh, this feels weird. Then I take the mask off and because I've done it, I watch them and I get it. The the idea, that idea of that physical, because what what he ended up saying was not about go to the, because a lot of, especially clowning people think, go to the neutral and build from the neutral. And that wasn't the point. The point was, know what the neutral is, but know what you are outside the neutral and adjust from where, who you are into the physicality. If it's, and it's, it's not about kind of you becoming a hunch, you know, with your shoulders up and all that kind of... It's more of pace and temperament and time and how you, how you can walk, man. And I, I got from that... I knew in a, in a show, when I'm walking, I'm walking, I'm, I'm walking 10 feet and, and I stand and turn around, I just have to look, tiny little look. If something's happened behind me and I'm not aware of, I, and there's a laugh because something's happened behind me, say from an audience member, I just have to look like that. And when I look like that, I'll get another laugh on that, playing that thing. And also, um, I've got a dear friend called John Carlin, who's an actor, musician from New York. And I'd never re- read a book. And John's like, you'd never read a book. So he took, we went, I went. <laughs> you'd he, never read a book? I'd never read a book. No, no. And I, so I was 20 and I went to Hammersmith Library to read a book in a day. He said, go and read a book in a day. And he goes, read Winnie the Pooh. So I read Winnie the Pooh from cover to cover. I finished it just five minutes before. And the woman upstairs, I think she, I'm like, it was the hot, I think one of the hardest things I'd done. I 
physically read a book all the way. I sat down. It took about seven hours. It just like, and then he said, the next book, he said, look at this book. And it was improv, the book by... Keith Johnston. Keith Johnston. And he opened it up and he said, look at this. And I never read the whole book. And it was the, it was the section on status and the statuses of, of you and I at the yeah. moment, this is your podcast, you're the, of the highest status... But it could be perceived that I am the guest, so I'm the highest. Sure, leader. sure. And, and then, it's about how every interaction between every character, between every person, you yeah. are either raising or lowering yours yeah. or their status with everything you yeah. say. So if I walk into a comedy club with you and everybody knows you, then then you're of the highest status. And mm. if you walk into an international festival where mm. everybody knows me and nobody knows you, a street festival, then vice versa. And that changes. And I just... That just was groundbreaking. That just grabbed me. I'm like, oh, this is what this is all about. I'm playing this game. And that's the clowning thing. I found out about playing the low status. And when you get down to that low status, you become invincible. And then people talk to me about, you know, about King Lear and the fool when he says, when, he, when he's chucked one of his daughters away or something like that. I don't even know the story. And uh, he, he gets, he banishes his daughter or something like that. And, and, the fool says, take my comb, which is the hat, take it. You're the fool. And he said, I'll whip thee. And then he goes, then what will you do? And it's just like the idea that the fool, the most powerful man, the, the fool becomes the power. And playing that in clowning and in street and in, in talking stuff, it becomes really enormous. Because if I'm low status... I can't go wrong. I got I got punched square in the face in the middle of a show in uh, Covent Garden and floored by a guy that came and I understood his point of view. He didn't know that the audience, there was a few hundred people behind him. Yeah. So he thought it was... You thought you were just an individual winding him up. Winding him up? Yeah. I went to the floor and I'm down on the floor and now I go, what am I going to do? Because my ratty little kind of uh, northeast kind of... I'm ready, I'll get up and shall we have a scrap? Because I don't care. And I thought, I can't do that. And then I just pointed and I lay on the floor and I just pointed and he just followed my finger and he looked. Then he seen the audience. And that was a good thing. But that, you know, Keith Johnston taught me how to do that. And I've never even met him. I just like, I knew if I stayed there, he could have given me a kicking. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. But by doing that, I knew if I just waited for a minute, for a second, a moment, and I did that, he looks out, and then he gets it, then he's embarrassed, and I just go, it's okay, it's okay. And I said, I'm sorry. And I get up, and I get the gift, because I give him a hug, and he gives me a hug back. Oh, my God. And it was just like, and then off he goes. And I know you understand this, because you've seen what can happen there. This, yeah. That's what street theatre is about. These things that happen, and I know they happen in comedy clubs and in theatres, especially with comedy, especially in comedy clubs. You know, I can't do comedy clubs because I tried. Did was, you? Yeah, I did. I did a lot of stuff in the late 80s, early 90s, and I tried. But, you know, I was just, I was just the headache because I turn up with stuff. <laughs> and I, you know, I'd have to get... The, you know, and they go, can you do a five? I'd, I'd 
don't even think I knew what a five meant. <laughs> it's just like, go on there and do that. All right, I'm going to do it. Ah, oh, look, somebody over there. Let's build some chairs. Yeah. <laughs> you stand up, you stand up. And, you know, I'd finish. And that particular one was a cabaret club up in North London. I think the Etcetera Theatre or somewhere like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And there was a cabaret. There was a load of comedians on and, and some off-the-wall stuff. And then, no, it wasn't in there. It was... Camden see? Jonglers or something. It was back something when like they had, that. When they did proper variety bills. Oh, yeah. And so I did some... I did one in, out in East London. I remember doing that. I tried... I think it was the opening night and I tied a rope called Jester's. Yeah. And I tied a rope between the pillars. I tried to, tried to do a slack rope routine in the middle of a comedy club. Um, used to, so it never worked. And they just like... They were glad to get me out. And I didn't know how to conduct myself in a kind of professional way but you know as it is now so that's why the street give me that freedom and I'm like all right this is where I am you take genuine risks on the street risks that in some cases result in you being punched in the face you know there's like I always think that when comics talk about how not that any comic walks around saying how edgy and risky they are, but they certainly, well, some of them probably do, but, you know, there is certainly a sort of an assumption that some com- that comedy contains real rawness. And I do think of, I do think of some of the rawness that I've seen on the street as a kind of counter-argument to, yeah, it's raw. How, how raw is he? Okay, someone might get up and punch you conceivably, but it doesn't happen that often. Uh, on, on a stand-up stage, can we talk about nicking a bin lorry or it would be better not? Wow. I can, we can delete that. No, come on, let's talk about it. <laughs> uh, you and let's unname, let's not name your uh, accomplices. Should we name them? <laughs> Shall I tell you the whole well, story? Well, I don't know if we should name them because I think you have permission to talk about your part of the okay. story. We can't get their consent necessarily. All right. Um, in Edinburgh, there's a place, there's a square called Hunter Square. It's where the, the high street started, basically, the... And um, the Tron, it's, the, it's, it's next to the, the Tron, Tron and the Monkey Barrel. If that's uh, helps. so, I was doing a show. I, oh, I, I had a show there, and I didn't want to do the show by myself. So we, so we decided that two of the performers, one of them a legend, uh, physical clown. And another one, a fantastic friend of ours who was just starting performing in his early stages of performing. So um, we, uh, we'd been out the night before and we started doing the show together, all three of us. And we'd never done a show together. And I'd done a show with each of them two individually. And with this other street clown, we'd worked together quite a lot. Um, and uh, a bin wagon pulls up during the show. Like a, a lorry, a bin lorry. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're changing the thing. And there's always an interaction with the bin, with the, with the bin crews, and they're really good fun. Because one of the unique aspects of that pitch is that there is a road right behind it. Road so right there would often uh, be interaction with vehicles. So for a laugh, we get into the bin wagon, which you would do. <laughs> and they're standing there. And I'm in the driving seat. And I, I rev it, close the door. Like the driver's not in it. Where is the driver at this time? They're, they're changing the bin. Okay. They've got out to change the bin. Okay. I'm there then. I pull the door shut. And the other two said, well, are we going to do it? 
and that's enough of a that's the risk factor there's 200 300 people watching it's like we've committed so we better do it so i drive the bin wagon off down the road but it's a one-way street so i drive down to the bottom of the hill and realize i can't reverse back up by the way i don't have a driving license oh god um not in the so we have to drive it down to the bottom of the street. But, my lord, I was being a clown. I had committed. Yeah. <laughs> we drove left, and then you've got to go all the way down to the almost the bottom of the Royal Mile, turn back around and come back up, wait at the traffic lights, turn left and come back in. It's ten minutes. There's three clowns in a bin wagon. I'm just thinking, if the police see three clowns in a bin wagon, I mean, we just look... Like homeless clowns. Yeah. <laughs> and then we pull it back in. And unfortunately, the woman who was driving it was her first day at work. <gasps> so our fun and games, we get out. And they're like, we're just, and I know one of the other bin men really well. Mm. He's like, Herbie, we're ready to call the police. You can't do this. And I'm like, I'm sorry. We just, we did it for a gag. Were the audience still there? Yeah, triple. Yeah. <laughs> triple. It's just like they knew. And then, um, my God. And then the woman's like, I'll get sacked now. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm so, honestly, I'm sorry. I'm really, what can I do? She's like, don't ever do that again. I'm like, I'm, so that that risk and that danger and like the commit, because... I think in the street, we don't see it as risk and danger. Mm. I think it's about commit. It's like you've got the freedom to commit to something and you've got to see how far you can take it because you're responsible for yourself. Can you take it to the... At which point are you going to get off? Because the train will go on. It will go on and on and on, you know? And that's the risk. And how did that show end? Were you having that conversation with the lorry drivers? Yeah, they went off and we went... And then I can't... I think we just kind of... I think we finished it up. But we didn't have it, which is the collect. You just... You go, okay. So that's the game. I I, I wouldn't get to that point now, though, in life. Yeah. I say that. That's not true. Um, I'd do it differently. Um... I couldn't work that pitch for 10 years after that, physically for myself. I couldn't go there and I couldn't work on that pitch. I did, I'd worked there about three years ago. Did you find out if that lady did lose her job? No, I've seen her years later. And she didn't? No, she didn't. She didn't. But everybody just backed off and left her. You know, yeah. don't mess with her. Because I screwed up a really nice little interactive that so- collectively bought, belonged to the community. From then on, you couldn't do it. You couldn't play with them. Yes, yes. To borrow a, a line from therapy, what would you have done? What would you do differently this time? <laughs> like what What other kind of perform? Presumably there were lots of other performative options or were there no other options once you'd all bundled into the cab? I, I would have played clown car. I've thought about this. So what you do is I get in and then the other person gets out and runs around goes no I want to get in so they jump out and then the other person goes around so there's a game there mm. that's nice that's interactive and then um, I would have most likely climbed on top of it and stood on top of it which would have been really good fun 
and that would have been 15, 20 foot high, me on top of a bin wagon. Um, who knows? I would have tried to... I could have maybe done the really dangerous thing of climbed into the back of the mechanism that moves. So... Yeah, maybe not that one. I know, but it's that's the thing about it. It's like, yeah, the risk is that they've gonna they're not gonna press the button. I wouldn't do it when they were near the button. I'd do it, but that's the thing. So oh, And and what is it about uh, No, but the answer to your question is I would have just left them alone. Yeah. I would have left them alone. I would have played with them with some rubbish or something tiny and just got on with my life. So what is it about your personality that that means you would cast physical safety to the wind in order to pursue the risk for the sake of the joke is it is it the risk about it being funny is it the risk is is to do with it being mythic to do with it just being what you have to do or is it to do with a self-destructive streak in you or a streak in you which makes the game of the show more important than your freedom or physical safety I don't think about the physical safety. Um, I think it's the freedom, the freedom to do. I built in Edinburgh a few years ago, I built a, a contraption, which was a like a big, massive seesaw that was about 15 foot high. And I put a member of the audience and it was all done with, um, with uh, wagon straps and stuff like that. And I built it. And I put a member of the audience on the other side in a plastic chair. Then, and it was a big ladder that went out and I had to climb out to the other side and create a counterbalance. The idea was I was going to then juggle, stand on it and juggle. But back, I still can't juggle. <laughs> but I found that it wouldn't balance right. So then I used to get women to put their handbags on the end, which they were really reluctant because <laughs> I, I learned after that that women treasure their handbags. <laughs> and I didn't know that. So they'd hang them on the end and this guy who's from the audience would be sitting there just levitating about four or five feet. And I remember one day going, if I fall off backwards now, I've got no helmet on, I'll most likely die. That's one of the few times in my life in performance going, fucking hell, I've got to be careful here. I'm getting a bit older. You know, if I slip backwards, because I, I recognised, I've, I've run a circus and I've run tents and, and venues, so I know about risk assessment now. So that comes into a court. If I fall off backwards, how do I, how do I risk assess this to fall off backwards? So I worked out, I just, if I've got a piece of rope that's tied to the thing and I tie it to my belt, that means I can't fall backwards. But it means if he gets off, I'm fucked. But, you know, that's where life started to change a bit. But I'll take the risk. I'll take the risk not to go, oh, I want to be edgy. I'm not, that's not the intention. I want to take the risk because I want to see what the parameters of the adventure brings and what the audience reaction and see if they'll go there with, you know, if they'll go with us. Because we as performers, even any kind of performance, we're good at creating this perceived myth of something. So, you know, if you're juggling knives, 
you dress, even if you tell people the knives are not sharp, by the time you've got to that point of reselling it back to the people, the people don't care because they've bought into it. This is back to the Santa thing. You know, I'm there, a Santa, even if people walk in and kids walk in and think I'm not Santa, by the time my job is within three minutes is to go, oh, I've just met Santa. And all of that myth and that connection with the world is that's where the risk comes from. And funny enough, Santa's become more of a risk than doing silly shit in the street. And the payoff can be great. Because it's more of a risk because there is more at stake with the individual and the, the state of the child or the person that, that is having the Santa encounter. Yeah. Like it means something to them. So that meaning, the weight of that is the risk. Yeah. And you've got to pull it off. And you can't, you can't let it go halfway through. You've got to keep a hold of it. And especially in the street, it's so demographic. The, the, the democracy of it is, is that anybody's there. And the minute you commit to it, they're with you. So the, it's interesting, the risk. It's about the kind of... I'll only do the risk if the people are there and I, I feel that they'll allow me to take. I think quite in your trade, in, in stand-up, it's quite interesting. I see a lot of comedians that are trying to look for the risk. And what happens is when you look for something, you try too hard. In the street, you don't have to go looking for it because it's there if you want it. If you, I hope you understand that. It's like, and I think that's the difference between, because I nearly became a stand-up comedian. I don't think I would have survived. I don't think I would have done much with it because I think I've had, I've been able to do more with what I've done and you end up who you are anyway. But I'm, I'm gabbling a bit. So I think I'm trying to, I'm trying to say something that I haven't quite formed. That was me living a pause in case I no. can inspire you to, to, to get to the bottom of that thing. What is it? It's the... The thing I'm saying about what I recognise, especially in today, it's not like it used to be because he's 51. Because he's changed more than the world has changed. But yeah. the world's changed at the same time. Is um, I see... Because stand-up comedy is everywhere. Yeah. Street performance everywhere. And street performance still secret. It's still something that you can either ignore or you can get. Um, and I've talked a lot about, we've talked a lot about risk. And I, there's nothing worse than performers talking about being risky. And I think the point I'm trying to get to is that, like I said... In a lot of stand-up, I see the mechanisms of people trying to be risky. I will talk this. I, why, why I've got a bit more of an understanding. I became, a, um, for a year, I took a year out as well, part-time, and I became a technician at a theatre. And I, I've seen 100 stand-up comedy acts come through within a year. I've teched everybody. I've teched some of the biggest names in TV down to people I've never met be, before. And... It was, it's great being a technician because you can watch 
because you're playing with um, you're playing with formulas all the time to be a technician, you watch even more the formula of the performer, not just stand-up comedians, but theatre and and comedy and music. And the thing is, everybody's looking for risk. And especially indoors, everybody's looking for risk. But outside, the freedom is there for the risk. You don't have to chase it to be dangerous in what you say. You don't have to be... It, it's there and you can... It's inherent. It's inherent. And what you can do is you can jump on it and ride it. And if you do that, and I'm not saying that it's successful because it's not, you know, you're only as good as your next show. So it's not successful because it's still a, oh, I might do that. I might get that twice in 10. But there's more freedom to be able to discover that risk, not to try and contrive it. I still contrive it. I still... And some of my mates still contrive it, and sometimes it's awful, and sometimes it's brilliant. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Before we wrap up, what are your flaws as a performer? What's held you back as a performer? Uh, My lack of discipline. Uh, too many ideas. If I have an idea, I'll do the idea at the minute in the room I'm staying in. I'm building a seven foot life size baby, even though baby's not seven foot life size. <laughs> a puppet that cries and that that uh, that farts, and I'm building it. And the woman thinks I'm a bit mental, uh, so it's not going down well. Um, so the flaws are uh, uh, unhappiness came and hit me for a long, long time. And um, I'm overcoming that now, and I know how to deal with that. Um, I, I, I wasn't educated enough to know how to play the game and the business. But at the moment, I think I'm glad... Being a technician was quite interesting watching people that have hit big time. I've teched people that have been and done 10,000 seaters and were in my little theatre. And it's really interesting watching them going, you're the same age as me and you've just been on a different journey, but we're in the same physical place at this moment. So um, my flaws are, yeah, too many ideas all the time, but I'm not going to give that up because I believe in 100 and you get one. But in my case, if I have 100 ideas, I'll get 200. <laughs> and, yeah, um, uh, the inability to just to not fucking emails, to answer an email, you know, not to send invoices. One year I had seven and a half thousand pounds worth of invoices over two years that I hadn't sent off. 
don't I don't want the money, even though I need it. I just, you know, and that's not me being big going, oh, I've got seven and a half grand's worth, you know. It's just like, you know, I got lucky. Uh, inabilities to do all of that thing, which I'm slowly learning, which football, football statistics is teaching me how to do that. <laughs> I'm, I've become interested in mathematics. To finish off the, con- the part of the conversation that is about risk, when risk goes well, you succeed and you create a genuinely magical thing that is memorable and meaningful for you and for them. When you take a risk and don't pull it off, and this is the reason people take fewer risks than some of us perhaps might, it feels terrible. It feels dog shit. It's a car crash. How do you cope with it when it goes wrong? How, do you, how have you historically coped with things going badly? It doesn't go wrong. You just get different elements of outcome. So when you start... This is me. When I start to try and do something, if I do it and then end up with an outcome, that's the outcome that it is. It mightn't be. I don't expect, I don't set something up and go, you know, I would like it to end up being like this. It just, I've never thought that way. I've thought, I'm going to do this thing and we'll see what happens. You know, if I end up harming somebody emotionally or physically then I have to address that then what I'll do is I'll stop that and the learning point is that I'll change that and not do it again hopefully and then live that experience when 20 years later in the middle of the night going I wish I hadn't done that as we all do um but there's there's only outcome I I I think that's laudable and uh, intellectual how do you cope in the moment when it goes horrible and you walk off, you know, sad? I don't... I think I've worked mechanisms to, to not end up, you know... I know my job now. I know my job is to make people hopefully happy. Not even laugh, just happy. And to laugh, possibly. And if I've got something out of it, if something happens... And it's the thing about doing street shows... If that's happened in the street, you deal with the consequence because the people are there. There's no security there. There's nobody to throw them people out or to throw you out. You deal with that people if something happens, which is many times has happened with people in audience and the likes of, you know, you deal, you deal with them and you go up to them. And uh, it's back to the status. You have to be humble. You have to come back to the humility. I, I'll say Sorry. I won't say sorry much in life, not in relationships and that. I find because I'm a stubborn bloke. But in it's funny. It's like if if I if I take the risk and it causes harm, any kind of harm. Oh, I'll like that with that woman with the with the uh, the bin wagon. I just you know I'll live that and I you know I won't do that again. But. The numbers are on my side. If I take a risk, just, you know, be more caring. I have to be more caring. But the older I get, the less I'm doing this because it physically hurts now. But that's why I'm going to build a big, enormous puppet circus. But every puppet has to be able to go on the X-51 bus (laughs) because you've got to pack it down. I'm not having any trailers or trucks 
or buses which we used to have to tour with. If it doesn't go on the X-51 bus, it doesn't come with me. <laughs> I haven't answered your question again. <laughs> what happens if something goes wrong when you're being Santa? It'll never go wrong. When you're Santa, it can't go wrong. Because it's a because Santa is bigger than that. It's not me being a performer. It's not me being a clown. It's about me being Santa. And that means I can never, it can never go wrong. That's extraordinary. I do, I, I, I feel like I believe that without ever having done that gig myself. And maybe it'll be in my future one day. I have to say, part of it does appeal to me. <laughs> maybe not such a long shift. But... But I I I, lo- I love to believe that I won't know that firsthand, but like things you know, kids you see these awful photos of kids crying on Santa's lap and stuff like that. Have you had tearful kids and yeah. upset kids and stuff like that? And how does what's the rhythm of that? How do you cope with? I stop. I tell I tell the who, the parents because the parents are under stress straight away and are trying to push the kid onto yeah. onto me or near me for a thing. There's no sitting on knees anymore, um, and. I have to then manage the parents usually and manage the kids. And I ask everybody to stop talking. And we do 10 seconds of stop talking. And then it just stops and it changes it. But if the kid's crying, I tell them to go for a walk yeah. and come back. And we'll try again. And they have, it's usually parents with the first kid. And they the kids too. And they want the picture. They want... To give yeah, the parents, sure, sure. You know, and I get uh, the big thing is I get the I get the parents to come in. I do the family picture, which is so much more important than having the kid by themselves because they're trying to put the kid on here, and I'm trying to hold the kid, and the kid's never met me. Yeah, and, and so, you look weird because you're all dressed strange and it's all heightened and and it's all heightened and all and yeah. So that's the big thing of, of like they come in. That's why it can never go wrong with Santa. Even that, that's not going wrong. They're going to have the picture in 25 years' time and then go, look, this is you and Santa contorted crying. And Santa's, you know, so that's it. Thanks, Santa. Merry Christmas. So that was Santa. Thanks so much to Santa for coming along. Thank you so much to Herbie Treehead for bringing him. If you would like to follow Herbie Treehead, I'm not honestly sure where you can do that. You can certainly catch up with some of his stuff. Um, He's got some little bits and bobs of promo on Facebook if you search Herbie Treehead and you might find yourself falling down quite an enjoyable circusy rabbit hole if you do that. Um, You can also listen to the Happy Song. You can listen. We only spoke about it a little bit, but Herbie Treehead's album Sleepy Songs and Not So Sleepy Songs is available on Spotify and I urge you to listen to it especially if you have young children but I've got such happy memories of going along to see the Herbie Treehead disaster band at Glastonbury and festivals uh, and street festivals all over the place and seeing his genuinely unique brand of absolute silliness so do check him out on Spotify um, but really you've got to see him perform live somewhere so if you are ever at a Spiegel tent somewhere in the world or uh, or at the Winchester Hat Fair or the Edinburgh Festival or anywhere else, if you see his name chalked up on a board somewhere, 
Do not miss Herbie. Thank you so much to him for coming along. Thanks to all the usual suspects. Thank you so much, Nathan Wood, for looking after the show and producing it and editing it and uploading it and all of that uh, terribly tiresome faff. He has been your uh, he's been your Bob Cratchit today. Uh, thanks also to uh, J.K. Crossland, who is your I'm going to quickly run out of uh, <laughs> of Scrooge characters. Uh, he's your Jacob Marley, perhaps, uh, and Peter Dobbing, as always, is your Tiny Tim. I've been Stu Goldsmith. Uh, I'm not going to do any advertising blurb of anything on here, um, but uh, I hope you all have a fantastic Christmas and uh, I hope that the country will heal itself. I'm recording this on the day of the election, but I've just flown to LA to do the aforementioned set on Conan and as a result, um, I haven't been able to boast about it on social media because I've been too busy weeping and reading everyone else weeping on social media. I hope that whatever your political persuasion, you can find something to be hopeful about. Oh, God. Um, But uh, listen, this is a broad church, so uh, to everyone... Regardless of your politics, I hope you have a wonderful Christmas and a very happy new year. Loads of cracking content coming your way soon, including John Kearns, Ishan Akbar. Uh, We have Jamali Maddox uh, and someone else very exciting as well, who Tom Basden. And I just had a real, a real dream guest go in the diary for February next year. So plenty to enjoy there. Have a great time. Thanks for listening.